Mighty Lord, we thank you for another day in which we are able to come to praise you, to worship you, and to hear your word. We ask, O Lord, that you would bless us as we deal with this particular text, which is not as a happy text would be, but rather demonstrates some of the depravity that remains in your people. We ask, Lord, that you would grant grace to us as we look at this passage, that you would aid us in understanding it, that we might see Christ more clearly, that you might minister to us and might aid us. And we so ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're reading Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 to 38, which is the end of the chapter. Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with their father. And he did not know what she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name ben He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. May the Lord bless his word to us. We find in this particular passage that Lot has left and he has not gone to Zoar. Instead, he moved through Zoar up to the caves where they had told him in the first place to go. He finally goes to the place where the angels in chapter 19, verse 17, told him that he was supposed to go in the beginning. And the text states that he was afraid to live in Zoar, probably because he had escaped the destruction when no one else did. Or if he was righteously in agreement with God's decision for destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, he would no doubt be oppressed by everyone else living in the surrounding regions. So, he went up in the mountains and he dwelt in a cave there. Then, we find the daughter's plot. The firstborn says to the younger that we want to preserve our lineage. There's no man on earth to come into us as is the custom. Let's get our father drunk. Let's preserve the line that way. So Lot's two daughters, aware that he's old and unable to have children with maybe some other woman that would be his equal, they plot to preserve his lineage by sleeping with him while he's drunk. And there are no other men. But what about the men of Zoar? There's a city not too far from them. Well, 
The city might have been as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah, and so they didn't want that men from the city to be their husbands, lest they displease God, much like the wackiness of Lot's idea to give his two daughters over to those who were knocking at his door. Or maybe that the fire had finally reached Zoar, of which the Lord had originally intended to destroy, and left no one else. Thus the daughters might have thought that they were the only ones left, just as God had destroyed the world by flood before, he now may have destroyed the world by fire now. What would they do? In either case, it's still wrong for the daughters to have sex with their father. The Lord sees incest as a very horrible sin. But they go on with the plan. They made their father drink wine that night. They went in, the firstborn. And then the next night they made him drunk again, and the second did. They got him drunk, and he is so drunk that he doesn't know when she lays down or when she arose. And the same thing happens the second night with the second daughter. Moses is very particular to demonstrate the outcome. The outcome is that both of them became pregnant, the first gave birth, the second gave birth, Moab and Ammon. Both daughters become pregnant with child by their father, and the word Moab means from our father. And the younger daughter gives birth, Ben-Ami, which means kinsman. You can imagine Lot's amazement at seeing his daughters grow in their pregnancy. Both names have in their meaning the relational aspect that Lot is the father. And there's a subtle hint within the verses of 36 to 38 of the relationship of Moab and the Ammonites. And ultimately, they become rivals of Israel in the future. Much like the problem that we're going to see with uh, Ishmael and how Hagar and how Abraham and Sarah and how they dealt with all of this, trying to fix things on their own. The daughters do that same thing. So, pulling a particular idea out of this particular passage, I want to talk about the welling up of sin in the believer. Oftentimes, people who believe that there can be such a thing as a carnal Christian, a carnal Christian is somebody who can be a Christian or be changed by God inwardly in the heart, but not outwardly in their life, they use this particular passage to demonstrate that. But there is no such thing as a carnal Christian. But when Christians act carnally, they mimic the same disregard for God's law that Lot did, that his wife did, and now his daughters did. Many try to prove it from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and from this text in Genesis 19, that a Christian can be a Christian and not change. You remember 1 Corinthians 5 says that a man has his father's wife. Well, the statements that somebody would make of this false doctrine, of this carnal Christian idea, is that a person can be saved and not changed, they can live in sin, they can show no fruit, and they can still be saved. 
Jesus can be your Savior, but not your Lord, or just yet. Because you have to allow him on the throne. But this is not the way that the scriptures speak about how Christians behave or act. People who don't change, as Jude says, for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the truth of our God into a lie and deny Jesus our only sovereign and Lord. People who teach that Christians can be saved and not change are these godless men. These are the people who teach such things. Christ is Lord already over everyone, saved and unsaved. But not all people have Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior at the same time. And you can only have it at the same time as at any time. The scripture refutes this heresy very plainly. What they do not understand is the power of salvation and the changing of the heart is something that actually changes the person. John chapter 3, when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, he specifically tells Nicodemus that the Spirit of God will blow on a person and change them. And as a result of that change, they will bear fruit that demonstrates that change. The Spirit must save them first, take out the heart of stone, put in a heart that beats after God, and then they will live after God. If they don't, then they won't. That's why Ezekiel 36 talks about taking out the heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. So doesn't Jeremiah 31, 33. And that's why Jesus tells Nicodemus that these are Old Testament ideas. Being regenerated is not a New Testament thing. That's a normal manner in which God saves and changes somebody. God must change the heart. And if God changes a man's heart, their heart is changed. One cannot be saved unless that change occurs. That's why in the same epistle in which Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to cast out the unfaithful one who is sleeping with his father's wife, he says in 1 Corinthians 12.3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Which doesn't mean that they necessarily just say it with their lips. We could write something on a sign, walk out on the street, say, I'll give you $5 to anybody that we meet to read what the sign says. And the sign says, Jesus is Lord. Does that negate what Paul is saying? No. Paul is talking about the change that must take place in order to say that and mean that it's being regenerated. So if we find people who say that they have Christ as their Savior and not their Lord, we know either one of two things. They have not been truly born again by the Spirit, or they have simply created an excuse for their sin and must repent. Now, Lot and his daughters were not carnal Christians. They were simply aggravating their sin by their blatant misapplication of how to use their will. They tried as we see all through the scriptures, to figure things out on their own. And every time Christian people try to fix things on their own, and on their own strength, they will fail. 
They did not consult God. We don't see them asking for God's help here. They didn't even consult their father. They did not go and consult Abraham. They knew where Abraham was. Did they forget that Lot was a righteous man? 2 Peter 2, 6-9. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction. This is Lot. Making them an example of those who afterward lived ungodly and delivered righteous Lot. Lot is deemed as a righteous man. Remember what the people of Sodom said about him. This one came in to stay here and he keeps acting like a judge. Genesis 18.9 Lot continually saw their wickedness and judged them in their wickedness because he called it like he saw it. Did they forget this? Did Lot's daughters forget all of these things? Not only were they aggravating their sin, but Lot was doing the same. It doesn't sound like Lot was being very wise in managing his family here at all. And this can be accounted for by him bringing his family to dwell in Sodom right off the bat. So we know he's not a very good family man, so to speak. And allowing himself to be tricked and to become drunk by his daughters, it would be easy then to classify Lot as backslidden. And a backslidden Christian is someone who knows their miserable condition and does not do enough to get out of it. It would have been unmistakable for Lot to have awoken the next day and had a headache and had a hangover from being drunk. He would have known that being drunk is wrong. But he wasn't doing enough to get out of it. He did it again the next night. They remain, for whatever reason, oppressed by the world, oppressed by the flesh, oppressed by the devil, and they do not get enough stamina, enough spiritual stamina. They do not strive to get out of the mess that they're in. Backslidden Christians always give excuses to their backsliddenness, saying that they don't have enough power to get out of it, or God has not rescued them yet. They're content, unwillingly though, to stay in their sin. But what can they do? But every Christian, every Christian is freed, empowered, and has the promises of Scripture to rest upon, so there's never an excuse to remain in sin. Lot should have gotten out of his sin quickly, but we never hear of any of that in the narrative. How do we know he was backslidden? What do you mean? We look at the passage we're dealing with. The daughters have become desensitized to God's commands. And they plot to have incest with their father. And Lot becomes so desensitized to God's command that he gets drunk twice. Twice in a row. I'm sure he would have recalled Noah when Noah got off the boat, planted vineyards, and gotten drunk. That that was displeasing to God. And what this shows us is what Peter continues to explain in 2 Peter 2, 7-9. Delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. 
Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Lot was, according to Peter, two things. One, he was oppressed. And two, he was tormented. What does it mean to be oppressed? He was oppressed. In this case, it was a direct result of Lot's stupidity. Because sin makes people stupid. He went to live among the heathen. He set his house up in the midst of the world. Day after day after day after day, he saw the wickedness of the city and the awful things they did in sin. Obviously, sin was not secret to the Sodomites since they were willing the whole city to come to Lot's house and gang rape two men that was their party time. And there were no laws being broken. For if it was the whole city, as the text says, that came out, well, the judges, the teachers, the police, the lawyers, the kings, all of them were joined in sin. And Lot placed himself in a situation that would ultimately rub off on him in some way. It does not matter how strong people are as a Christian. If you play with the fire of sin, ultimately, as Proverbs says, you'll get burned by it. He was oppressed by that lifestyle in that city for a very long time. What does it mean to be tormented? Peter says he was tormented as well. Sin first oppresses Christians and they struggle against it. That's oppression. But when they give heed to it, seeing it day in and day out, week in and week out, they will ultimately begin to be deadened and numbed by that sin. They become not only oppressed, but tormented by its effects, by it as a sin of their own that they will ultimately break forth in. Christians who are like Lot torment their souls, grieve the Holy Spirit when they remain and see and take part in the wickedness of the world. They do what Lot did. And it's slowly, and it's done subtly, so that you can't see the sin clearly that you're falling into. Lot did not wake up that morning and say, I'm going to sin against God today. He didn't do that. The plot and the seduction of the daughters, the drunkenness of Lot, shows us that Sodom here in the cave with three people and three people who were in covenant with God, Sodom was being reborn again. And in a real sense, we'll see it later because the Ammonites and the Moabites both have deadened attitudes towards righteousness as we find with their dealings with Israel throughout the rest of the scriptures. They had escaped Sodom, but Sodom was still lingering in their hearts. And you remember their mother. She had so much materialism embedded in her nature that she was ultimately turned into a pillar of salt because she turned back to see all their wealth being consumed, all their security disappearing, and so God consumed her as well. And remember, Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Well, we even move from Lot's wife up to the cave. What is Lot 
remembered for. We don't have a record of their whole lives. We only have a record here of what Lot is remembered for. He sinned. And ultimately, God was the one who rescued him out of it. And remember, Sodom had such a grip on this man that the angels actually had to take him by the hand and his family and lead them out of the city. Lot is remembered for being a backslidden Christian. God sometimes leaves us in our sin for a time to show us how bad our sin is. And by this narrative, we, we see that the Spirit of God carried Moses along to specifically demonstrate, using the life of Lot, how bad sin is, even in the life of one who God considered righteous. When Christians willfully place themselves in the pleasures of the world, Christ will sometimes leave us there for a time, and he will allow us to wallow in that. God gives his people over sometimes to sin. We know he does that with the reprobate. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says a number of times those who act wickedly, God, quote, gave them over. God will leave them in their misery and show them that they are abased and reprobate in their mind. But when he does it with his people, when he does it with the Christian, God will leave them in their misery for a time and show them how truly sweet Jesus Christ is after the rescue. Lot no doubt praised God for his deliverance, but soon afterward he fell back into sin again. Now, we don't have a record of what God did with Lot afterwards, but this is how God uses sin sinlessly. If a Christian is left to himself and does not receive all the sanctifying graces of God, he will stumble. William Perkins described the manner in which Adam fell. Adam was like a staff in the shepherd's hand. And while the shepherd holds that staff, it remains upright. But what does a staff do in and of itself if the shepherd lets it go? It falls to the ground. Even righteous Adam, who had no sin, but was mutable, changeable. If the hand lets the staff go, it will fall. And Christians, much in the same way, are held by God. And yet, they have depravity and the remnants of remaining sin in them. And Christians rely on the power of God's grace and spirit to help them fight against sin because in and of themselves they are sinful and rebellious. And if that grace isn't there or isn't given to them, then it's like a car which runs out of oil and the oil is not replaced. Ultimately, it'll burn up the engine and it will need to be repaired by the mechanic. And when Christians have been delivered from the sin, they need to constantly fight against that sin all the more because the world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly desiring to get back in them again. Unfortunately for Lot and his family, they did not fight. They simply gave in. And is it not strange? I think it's very strange that he didn't go home to Abraham, which he could have done. But we don't see 
any inclination here at all that he went to Abraham the prophet, the righteous one, the friend of God. He hid in a cave. In taking these ideas and applying them to ourselves, we have to ask the question if we have the smell of Sodom on our clothes or whether or not we have that backslidden estate about us. Lot's daughters not only had the smell of Sodom on their clothes, but the depravity of Sodom welling up in their hearts. Matthew Henry says, There are some good men who are not wise enough to know what is best for themselves. This was the case for Lot. Is this the case for you? Notes this. In Sodom, Lot was righteous, a judge among the wicked. But when he comes to be alone, he and his daughters act wickedly behind closed doors. So, you have to ask yourselves, in the manner in which you conduct your lives, do you come to church hiding behind your Sunday smiles and Christian demeanor, and then your home to act like the heathen? Is Sunday the day that you put on your best behavior? And when you get to work, some of that goes into the closet. Do you act spiritual during Sunday morning? Maybe answering spiritual questions, bringing forth words of praise during worship as we sing. Sit patiently through preaching, but inwardly, you're really desiring to have your barbecue or to think about your grocery list or watch your TV show or run off to the mall or what have you. Because church is just not as fun or exciting as it should be. You might believe that you're hiding the backslidden attitude behind some kind of Sunday smile, but God knows what you're thinking and he knows what you're feeling and he knows what your desire is. Though your church family might not be so keenly aware, God is very aware. Take note, Moses was not on the mountain with Lot when he penned Genesis 19, 30-38. He was carried along by the Spirit of God to write the narrative. And take note again, Lot was remembered in the Scriptures for being backslidden. We don't hear anything else about him in any other than Peter's mention of him again. He was oppressed. He was tormented by sin. And if the Lord was going to remember you, what kind of narrative would he put you in? What would he say about you? How is it that you would be remembered? Second, how is it that a backslidden Christian climbs back up the mountain? There must be a time when you see that you are backslidden, and that you recognize your situation. The Christian only moves in two directions. He either moves forward in being more sanctified or backward in that he backslides. And that can differ day by day, depending upon the spiritual strength that one is receiving from the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to recognize and analyze where we are every day in our Christian walk. 
How is it that someone can fight their way out if they don't really know that they're in the hole? Which means we must recognize what the hole is and how the hole works and that what it looks like when we're in the hole. And not only must we recognize the situation that we're in, but your heart must be inclined to fight. Because you know that the backslidden condition hurts. Not only your sanctification, but more importantly, the Lord Jesus Christ who died for the sin that you were wallowing in. Nathan, no doubt, was saddened at the state of David staying in his sin and had to demonstrate to him vividly that he was in that hole. And when he realized he was in that hole, he wanted to be out of that hole. Those kinds of Christians need to pray and ask the Lord to rescue you from that situation. And God may do so by giving you the strength to fight back. If you're in that particular state, you should think shamefully about what you've done so that it never happens again to guard your heart with the word of God and that you become faithful to him in everything. And it must be that a Christian despises the sin they're in because if they don't despise that sin, they could easily fall back into it again just like Lot did and stay in it as a result. Remember, oftentimes people believe that confessing a sin or being forgiven for a sin is simply that. They pray and they confess and they're done with it. But confession is far more than that. That's only part of looking for forgiveness and knowing what repentance is all about. It's sight of sin, sorrow for it and confessing it and, and hating that sin and turning from it. All of those things are set in the context of repentance. And you have to be sure to reject that sin so that it never happens again. That you do everything that you can never to commit that sin again against Jesus Christ, ever. Because when we sin as Christians, we are far more wicked than any devil. Because we sin against the body and the blood of Christ, who died for us and who redeemed us. We sin against his blood that washed us clean. I have only told you suddenly, briefly, what repentance is all about in this way. But listen to the way that God looks at a man, the one that he pays attention to in Isaiah 66 too. On this one I will look, he who is of a poor and contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. That poor and contrite spirit is the humble spirit before God, that which the daughters of Lot rejected and that which Lot himself rejected. For a time, Abraham trembled at the judgment of God, called himself dust and ashes while he spoke with God. And the whole of the Christian life is a struggle to remind ourselves that that is the place where we must be at. We must be at the feet of God as dust and ashes. We must struggle against backsliding. We must always be pressing forward in our walk with God so that we would not carry any bit of Sodom in our heart. We say, oh, Sodom was so evil and so bad and so wicked, 
But look, here are the Christians in the cave, away from Sodom, but profoundly affected by being in its midst for so long that they carried a bit of Sodom in their heart. Jonathan Edwards, in his Resolutions, said this, I strive to be higher each week in religion than I was the week before. If that is the constant endeavor of the Christian, always moving forward, that is what we are striving for. Because if that is not our goal, then we will backslide. We have to put off the Sunday smiles and the wrong attitudes, the wayward thoughts, the world's pleasures, the flesh's desires. And instead, forwardly put on the new man. It's not enough just to escape Sodom, but we need to put on the new man so that we'll not backslide into sin. We have to get Sodom out of our hearts. For if we spend more time in the world than we do in the church, how can we expect not to backslide? Just spending more time in the world than we do in the church is the case of a backslidden Christian. We must never, at any time, ever, let the pleasures of Sodom arise in our hearts that we might please Christ instead and keep humble in an attitude of humility, dust and ashes, contrite and poor, that we might love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and hate every aspect of Sodom, that we might love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, for he died for us, that we might not sin against him ever. That is our goal. That is our striving. Sodom was rebirthed in this cave because they were so infected by much of what was around them. Even though God considered them righteous, they still carried around in them the remnant of remaining sin. And we must do everything that we can not to mimic their mistakes. This section of scripture is here. And it was a thorn in Israel's side because of their sin. The Ammonites and the Moabites were forever a thorn against the Israelites. We must see this passage as useful to us to aid us to please Christ to be in a state of repentance and constantly moving forward so that the pleasures of Sodom never try to take dominion to oppress or torment us in our Christian walk. Let's pray together. Mighty God and everlasting Father, we pray that you would aid us and we consecrate ourselves to you that you would aid us in not backsliding, not falling into sin, not taking that road of apostasy even for so little a time, but that we would dedicate ourselves to you, O God, afresh that we might follow you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, always pressing forward, always resolving to be higher in religion this week than last, that we might not let the pleasures of Sodom overtake us. Even Moses knew, as Hebrews so writes, that sin is fun for a season. And yet, O oh Lord, 
We pray that you would help us not to be tempted by its false security and instead follow you with a whole heart. Let us not be like the daughters, the wife, and Law himself. Rather, more righteous, because your spirit works in us and we rely on you for all things. And we so ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.